the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week. Episode 156, recorded Friday, August 15th, 2014. Chain of Trust. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I'm your host. With us this week, uh, George Tucker, engineering coordinator for World Stage. Uh, on the left or right-hand side of my brain, I always forget. How are you, sir? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm left-handed, so I'm the right-hand right hand side of your brain. You're the left-hand. I didn't know you were left-handed. Uh, unfortunately, true. I, I did, actually. And wasn't it uh, left-handed day the other day? Yes, it was. So nas- happy, happy International Left Handers Day to you, sir. Belated, thank you Belated very much. Well sung, you know. Cash okay. gifts are welcome. <laughs> what cash <laughs> gifts? I'll give you a pair of right-handed scissors and tell you to figure it out. Uh, also, with my wife, talk to me about it. <laughs> also with us is John Huntington. John's a, a full-on professor, so we have somebody smart on the panel at least for once. Uh, he's he's professor. At uh, the New York City College of Technology, uh, the New York City College of Technology, uh, also has a very nice po- uh, uh, blog called ControlGeek.net. How are you, sir? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, and last but not least, uh, Gary Yakubian. Uh, Gary is the president and principal at uh, CVS, or CVS, good Lord, that's a drug <laughs> company, SVS. How are you, Gary? I am doing great. I wish I was the president and principal of CVS. Well, yeah, awesome. so, yeah, don't all of us. Don't all of us, you know. Uh, all right. Uh, this week we're going to talk about a handful of things. Uh, AVB wrap-up. Actually, John John is one of the people that I, I, I lean on when it comes to uh, audio and, and transport uh, and also control. He, he wrote a very nice book, and, and uh, actually he's behind me here. Uh, but uh, we'll talk about uh, his, his wrap-up from AVB. Kaleidoscape, you can get it through, uh, through a new distributor now. And how to calibrate your television. But first, uh, Anuva, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Anuva has bought TIO. And if you've forgotten what TIO stands for, it stands for Turn It On. It's the uh, automation company that uh, that came out of a couple of different, uh, the, the conglomeration of a couple of different companies. They're out of Denver. They've had some issues in, in the past few months. Uh, there have been some interesting stories written, uh, people put on furlough, uh, paychecks not exactly uh, being able to be cashed and things of that nature. Well, th- this company Anuva ha- has purchased them now, uh, and it's going to be interesting. Cedia is is about a month away, actually a little less than a month away, and uh, we're going there for the first time as AV Nation covering it. TIO will be there, I, at least I assume they're where they're still going to be there uh, with this purchase. But the first thing, George, is this: What's the idea? What is Anuva hoping to get out of this purchase of of TIO? I can't be sure, but considering that they were one of the main partners, and I think if I read correctly, the manufacturer or partly involved yeah, in the manufacturer. Yeah, they're almost an OEM company. Yeah, so I think, are they trying to save their investment? Yeah. Apps, I mean, this would be the history of this company. Uh, what you said, another one, it was Colorado VNet, wasn't it, originally? Yes. Mm-hmm. Or the remnants of that. That was one of the, yeah. Was 
And what color vignettes was the remnants of something else, I believe? <laughs> rust sound? Was it the rust sound uh, uh, automation side? I'm not quite sure. I could be. I don't want to get in trouble there. But I, to me, that's what it sounds like. They think they have a good idea. There's been a plethora of DIY slash uh, off-the-shelf, semi-off-the-shelf systems coming out recently, either on Kickstarter or you know, being announced by different companies. So maybe they see something there, plus saving what their investment in it was. Yeah. I, maybe you'll start seeing it off the shelf instead of an integrator's version. I, I'm not quite my, clear. You know, my recollection of Colorado VNet was that they literally turned out the lights. Uh, they didn't go bankrupt. They just turned out the lights. And it, it was kind of dark for several months. And then uh, these former guys kind of moved in. And now, now this is happening. So it, it strikes me as probably not a giant financial investment in a space that is obviously super promising promising but <laughs> that's the problem with this space right it's promising so is <laughs> cold fusion uh <laughs> but um uh, you know uh, gary you, you make a good point so here's a question how long will, do we think that tio as a name will stick around will, do you think anuva will keep it or will they kind of fold it under themselves well, I think the interesting question is, you know, how do they think these products are going to be brought to market? Do they think that the Cedia channel is even the way to bring these products to market, or do they get brought to market by a DIY, you know, some kind of DIY way, or do they get brought to market through some giant, you know, uh, a pipeline company like a Comcast or one of those? You, you just don't know where they they think they can make their bets and how big of a bet they think they can make. But I think it's. I think you're right. It's been coming. It's been coming. Is it actually going to come, and how will it come, and what channels will, will be deployed to, to bring these to market? Really hard to tell. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, John? I have to say, oh, I was just going to say, reading this, I honestly wasn't really aware of this stuff before this uh, podcast, but reading this press release, I, this kind of language always just, I don't know, it's sort of a red flag to me, but it says TIO is unlike any other home automation system because it allows customers to control how the system interacts with their daily lives, et cetera. It's revolutionary. It has an outside-in philosophy that focuses on the customer experience. So, as usual, I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> it means it's revolutionary. There's right. nothing else like it, John. So that yeah. means you have to run out and get it right now. No other yeah, company in the history of the world has ever let you customize the interface nor <laughs> control the entire home. And obviously I'm doing it wrong because we're doing it inside out. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's your problem there. Yeah. See. Don't write me any emails either, because you know, there are no many companies that on the customer experience. They just, I don't know what they're focusing on. Then, so. Isn't it like crisscross inside out, or is that reverse? I can't oh, remember. now come on, he just passed away. Oh, did he? Oh, one, 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 one of them. I forget which one. I don't know if it's Chris or Cross. Well, I'm referring to the nostalgic version of <laughs> that. Let's not talk about the present. There right? we go. Yeah, <laughs> crisscross makes me want to go. Maybe jump, that's the metaphor jump. here. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I had to do that one. All right, uh, for those of you of a certain age, um, hello, Dave. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I am afraid that that is something I cannot allow to happen. Uh, that is the line, not the, quite the voice there, but I was trying, of the computer, Hal, from 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's also a line printed uh, on a nest this week. Um the only problem with that is it's not it's not what you get out of the box with Nest. Uh, this is from the the fine folks at the Black Hat Security uh, Conference this week. Uh, they hacked a Nest. All right, bottom line, they hacked a Nest. Uh, they were able to show some of the the security issues with that. 
from ne- from the the Google Nest side, they say, you know what, all these all of these things from laptops to cell phones to, you know, the Internet of Things, all of these things have have security issues and security flaws. The hackers at Black Hat, this is what they do, right? That's why the conference exists. Uh, Gary, when it comes to the Internet of Things, and let's kind of throw that out there and and kind of what we were talking about with with TIO even, um, because CIO uses some some cloud-based stuff. What will something like this do to the Internet of Things and this whole DIY control-your-home movement? You think it'll slow it down, or will it be one of those things where the the average consumer goes, "Eh, eh, no big deal." So you can, so you can hack my nest. I, I think it's a fascinating. It's I think it's the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. I mean, you have you have this amazingly promising category of business, which I think could benefit all, all you know all channels in, involved, uh, even even tangentially involved with it. But then you have this whole this whole concern about privacy. I don't know if you noticed the side story of this. Uh, a Missouri Police Department that that got outed. They they basically hacked into their system within a few hours of the event and had it all over the internet. Yeah. I mean, th- and this is the police department. I think I think there are uh, kind of conflicting trends here. And really, uh, I mean, I, I'd love to tell you I'm an expert in it. I am not, but it's it's going to be fascinating to watch these two trends bounce up against each other and see where it goes. What what Gary's referring to is is the Ferguson Police Department and and yes. j- just just for for geographic sake, that's about ten fifteen minutes that way for me. Um, oh, I didn't realize so it was it's close. it's been very interesting to watch. Uh, actually, one of the interesting things this week um, was a Reddit uh, a live Reddit that was kind of uh, conglomerating all of the different things that was that was happening and that's where I got a lot of my my unfiltered news this week. So it was mm-hmm. an interesting. Uh, social and, and, and internet experiment, uh, experiment for me. But, but what he's talking about is the fact that, that Anonymous, uh, you know, God yes. bless Anonymous, has hacked several times uh, the Ferguson Police Department uh, website, their database. Um, they've released a couple different names. Turns out that, that they were wrong, but they released a couple different names uh, of the police officer that was involved in the shooting. They've hacked the St. Louis County uh, Police Department, which for, again, uh, for reference, Ferguson is in St. Louis County, so there are some overlapping jurisdictional things there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that that, that is possible now uh, makes it very interesting. Uh, I do think the possibilities of the Internet of Things, sometimes we say, oh, you know, I don't really need my washing machine on the Internet, but I actually think that that gets underrated. It's very easy to be cynical about things like that. I think the Internet of Things is a hugely promising lifestyle enhancement, business opportunity, particularly for the CDA channel. Um, but I think they need to wrestle with these issues. We need to wrestle with these issues. Go ahead, John. And I just just wanted to point out one thing reading this article. It says, uh, Yoon Tello, who's the guy's name, plugged a USB. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, it, it says he, he plugged a universal serial, serial bus into the device. So I assume they mean USB cable. Mm-hmm. Into the device to put in developer mode. Uh, they did not show they could hack the device remotely. So I actually have a Nest. So unless they can break into my apartment with their laptop and plug it in or social engineer their way in, uh, you know, it's not that big of a security threat. Well, and to that end, did, did you see the, the article continues to say, the best bet is to use a GoPro to witness and watch if anyone's ever entering your house, yet another hackable device. <laughs> <laughs> this time, yeah, video just... to see exactly what you're doing. Okay, right, so, so the one thing about, about the Nest, though, and, and John, I've got one as well, <laughs> is is the, the uh, occupancy sensing mode. Right. If, 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 if they are able to hack it outside, 
then they'd be able to tell when you're not home, right? Because of some of the information oh, sure. that the Nest... Or that you're asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Google already knows that. And if anybody's... There's a guy's name... I just spoke at the hacker conference here, what, three weeks ago. That was Hope, uh, talking right? about Yeah, Hope Hackers on Planet Earth. And uh, at that... And the, they streamed it live this year, and every year for the last, I don't know, 10 years, this guy Steve Rambam has spoken. And if you don't know who he is, it's worth looking up and watch one of these uh, privacy presentations that he does. And he actually has a TV show on investigation discovery now. But he's a PI, and he's come to the hacker conference for probably 10 years and just lays out how much information is accessible to him. Uh, and, and you know, now it's kind of like a broken record because he's been saying basically the same presentation for eight years. But if you haven't, I mean, it's changing, of course, but if you haven't heard it once, it's worth looking that up. So look up this guy, Steve Rambam, R-A-M-B-A-M, and uh, look up one of his privacy's dead presentations. There's a bunch online from previous of these conferences, and I don't. We, you know, all that is. Uh, I, I don't know. It's all out there already. So uh, unless somebody can really get inside Google or whatever, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, we put so much information up ourselves that I'm just not that worried about. Uh, if somebody's smart enough to, I'll put it this way: if somebody's smart enough to break into my thermostat remotely, then they're probably not you know, a petty thief looking to just steal my TV. You know, they're more, it'd be more like somebody coming after me. But, and one big point that Ramban made that I thought was very good is like, if you're outraged by the NSA having all the metadata, then you should really be concerned about Facebook and Google because they have way, 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 way more information. Yeah, and of course they all sell it to each other and they have targeted marketing profiles and all that stuff. So. Here, well, it's interesting because everybody gets mad about people using this information for the profit motive. And I understand that, but I mean, reality is when you use that kind of information for the profit motive, for example, for ad retargeting and things like that, it's not too damaging to a, a person's life. I, right. I think that, that is the, the distinction, but I totally agree with you. But, and all of that is easily, and sometimes without subpoenas, it can be gotten by the law enforcement. So the, the private sector has way more information available than the government anyway. And if they want it, they can get it pretty easily. So it's fascinating. If you haven't heard one of these talks, because this guy Rambam, can, he's done this before. He just all he needs is a name, not even a birth date, and he'll get everything. And he can find you, you know, uh, in in days. He did a challenge with a guy who was a pretty technologically literate guy that he could find him within, you know, ten times within a year, and he, it was no problem. And he would do things like figure out what restaurant he's at and have the manager come out and buy him a drink and you know say gotcha and stuff like that. So that Holy was hell. you know two three years ago. So it's all it's all out there. You know, and I'm not a technologist on the level of you guys, I have a feeling, but, I mean, it is kind of ironic that the all this technology is being protected by essentially a, a, a thousand-year-old technique, which is a password. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like you'd think we, we would come up with something that corresponds to that level of technological uh, advancement more than just a password. And a lot of times the password is just a number or your birthday or some other thing. And I, I have a feeling that translates all the way to some of the most... Uh, Sophisticated databases that we have. Well, that's that makes it that brings up a really good point. Is is how do we start securing some of these things? Uh, what? Well, well, and, and ahead, I'll just John. tell a funny story. I won't say what it was, but I well, you can figure it out. But I helped write a certification exam, and they were we just had a series of online meetings uh, to update the exam, and uh, they would only give out the the credentials for the uh, login to the, the sample test by phone, and uh, that to me is the least secure way because I could have anybody call up uh, and just pretend to be me. So social engineering is always the, you know, mm -hmm. usually the first weakness on these things, and that's 
way easier than doesn't matter how many passwords you have if you can you know people will think you know end up with situations like that. So there's always a way in. Yeah, absolutely. totally agree. Yeah, you know, I just want to make that comment that John John makes a valid point is that one, it was physical, and two, my biggest concern is that with everything we've been talking about and the Internet of Things is what they're all worried about here, is that we have given over to convenience far and above security. Now, John's right, the public stuff out there that we feed it ourselves is far more informative. But the potential, as the devices multiply, is there. And if we're not putting the protocols and the framework in now to be secure, we're playing with fire. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was trying to find, there was a movie out there a couple of years ago in the 1990s about a home automation computer that goes nuts. And it was all about being jealous of the girl next door that he helps it fall in love with. Or sort of Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. But that's the thing we have to look out for. Eventually, it'll be able to track us everywhere. And if those chains of, what do they call it? chain of trust are not implemented into these systems for preventing it, then we're just asking it for it to be done. I mean, half those yeah. hackers yet hope would say, if you leave it open, we're helping you find them. Why are you oh, leaving absolutely. it open? Yeah. So, <laughs> Tony, do you say, do you, do you feel that we have the technology now to, to protect these, to protect this information? Uh, John, you can answer this, but I'm going to first say, yes, if they are implemented, that makes it more difficult for the end user to install. You have to get in there with your own USB or some kind of connection that says do the following, and that's a 12-step thing of doing a password that's not pound, 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 or one, two, three, four, you know, and that prevents anyone from ma manipulating it. First of all, why is it still on the motherboard to be manipulated? Why? Because it's cheaper in manufacturing and for firmware updating at the manufacturer or the service place to do that. It's sort of like anyone, you look at any uh, um, circuit board on consumer electronics, you'll see lots of traces and wires jumping stuff that didn't work when they first spun the board, but that's where they're doing it. And a lot of those components, uh, look at TiVos. In the early days, TiVos had just a little switch and a jumper on the board to turn it into twice the memory to half the memory. It was just simply putting the little jumper on. Why are you doing that? It's but convenience I, for you, convenience for me, but it's a security threat. Yeah, yeah and I would still say in this one, though, is, unless I haven't read this thing carefully, but they still had to get into your premises yeah. To, to, to do anything to the system. So it actually sounds to me like from Nest, which of course was bought by Google, it, it actually have pretty decent security area. I mean, if you get enough people to beat on anything, uh, you're, you'll, you'll find a way through it. But I mean, to me, this isn't a big threat because well, uh, it wasn't accessible remotely. I have a decent password on my Wi-Fi, so if somebody drives up in front and wants to try to get at it, they're still going to have to beat all the regular stuff. I have a decent lock on my door. So, I mean, I, I think the biggest security issue is mostly just people's complacency. I mean, the trade-off to me, like we're using Google Hangouts here, we get that for free because we give Google a lot of information about ourselves. That doesn't bother me. I think the biggest problem is just uh, people not, uh, you know, being complacent about these things. Like you said, putting in your birthday as your password or things like that. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest threat in the long run rather than, I'm not sure exactly who it is that would want to break into my thermostat. So, I mean, I guess that's the other, having a problem seeing the threat, uh, I forgot the name was Eco something, where they said they sent these free Wi-Fi dongles that uh, power switch things that sit on your air conditioner. Yeah. And uh, I got it, they just sent, I just signed up and they gave it to me for free. The idea is that they can throttle up the thermostat when they get a big demand usage thing. But of course, that also means kind of knows when I'm home or whatever, when I turn the AC on. But of course, they give me the ability to turn it on before I get home. So to me, it's a trade-off. So yeah. Con Ed knows when I'm turning my AC on, but I don't know. I, I'm not. Doesn't scare me that much. Hmm. 
I, the the one thing that I would say is is take it beyond Nest and take it beyond these these internet things, and take them to more professional uh, or, or pro AV control systems, whether it's AMX or, or Crestron or whoever. The one thing that in my conversations with those companies is the the fact that they do say that they have security and they have you know all of these things put to, put in place, but their other argument is the fact that of of who would ever want to break into XYZ company's processor. Right. I think that's a little naive to say, because now that all of those devices are on the network, um, anybody that wanted to have access to your network. I mean, there are a number of clients that that I personally am, am programming for that. You know what? I'm tying into their to their processor via the Internet. And from that uh, IP address, I can now maneuver my way if I so chose. Uh, to different parts of their network unless they have it locked down. So, you know, there, there, there are other issues here beyond just, you know, getting into somebody's, you know, thermostat. So. And, and a lot of things, there's always a solution for this stuff that uh, I know there's some new systems by, by some show control manufacturers where they're doing some network connectivity thing, but their approach is just the, the device is only outgoing only. It doesn't even accept anything okay. coming. So there's always an approach like that for, because all they really want to do is get the data out. They're not actually allowing you to control it. And, but there is ways to get in on these things. But yeah, it's, uh, but it, I think the bigger picture for people in AV is that, you know, this computer's well, actually all sorts of security. We just, we need to start thinking about it if you're not. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, again, you know, physical security is, is probably the first thing. If you're really concerned about it, you should be rock, uh, locking up your racks and things like that. Just some basic stuff, because even the, you know, that'll slow down the the kid that like I would have been when I was 13 or 14, and get in there and just mess around with it because it was interesting. That you at least got to make it make it a little more difficult for them. So yeah, and coming at it from a point of view of a manufacturer, do you really want to be the guy who's the weak link in somebody's home network? <laughs> no. I mean, I don't think I want to be. Yeah. If I have some wireless subwoofer that I'm I'm setting up or wireless speakers, and that's the weak link in a way that somebody can hack into a guy's whole system, I don't think I want that liability. No. No, not at all. Yeah. So. And I and I have some guidelines uh, to pimping my book, but the uh, I have some basic sort of principles that I use in my book. on things he's going to show it here. Um, but the you know one of the things is a lot of stuff we do does not need. Thank you, Ariel. Does not need to be on the network. So don't put it on the network. Right. You know, unless you have to. And then if you do, just make it very tightly controlled and all that stuff. So. Yeah, you can't have this when it's autographed, so I'm just it's by John Hunter. That's like the old adage. Yeah. Because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, speaking of home networks and theater and stuff, Kaleidoscape. Uh, you can now get Kaleidoscape through Azion. I think I'm saying that correctly. A-Z-I-O-N-E, Azion Unlimited. Here's the question for you guys, though. Uh, this is not uh, – it's, it's an interesting step for, for Kaleidoscape, not for, for the distributor. It's an interesting step for Kaleidoscape, though. Uh, George, first of all, why go through another distributor? Uh, what are the benefits and, the, and maybe the drawbacks of, of doing that? I, I don't know this distributor offhand, so it's not someone I've ever dealt with. Uh, what I can gather, though, it gets them access to an education market and maybe some other commercial uh, Asion is the buying group that was started by uh, Richard Glykes, who used to be the leader of HTSA. That that gives you some context. Okay. It's not a distributor, but a buying group, uh, and and the level of of okay, so uh, hang financial on. gain. Hang on for a second, Gary. Dis the, the, explain to me then the difference between a buying group and a distributor. Okay, so a buying group 
basically is an aggregation of integrators, dealers, whatever it is, and they have shared interests, and then the leader of the buying group will negotiate some favorable arrangement with the manufacturer. Maybe it's some better, slightly better margin, maybe it's marketing funds, maybe it's just things that those members get and that nobody else gets. Okay. But the members directly transact with that manufacturer. Okay. The distributor buys the product and then sells it again. Gotcha. And so, uh, uh, obviously, that, that's another beak that's dipping into the, the, the situation of, of the, the margin structure of the brand. All right, so so let me let me again make sure I understand this whole the whole scenario here. Instead of one person, let's say that, that it, we're going to have Aviation Distributing, right? Uh, instead of that person, that company buying all the, of the Kaleidoscapes and you coming to me to get it, it's George Tucker and John Huntington and Gary and and Tim's AV company. We all go to Kaleidoscape and say, hey, we're all going to buy from you but we're going to do it as a collective, but the invoicing and the actual money changing hands is between us and and Kaleidoscape. So I have no inside information, but I'll tell you how I think it went. Okay. But how it usually goes is you've got Richard Glykes, he's the leader of Azion, and he says, you guys make it attractive for my members over and above the, 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 the uh, selection set of all the integrators, make it more attractive for my members to, to transact with you and have a partnership with you. And then in return, I will tell my members to get in line and get behind um, Kaleidoscape, and I will give you access to them at our convention, and I will beat the drum for you. And, and, and presumably Kaleidoscape gives up a little in terms of their margin structure in order for access and, and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the members of the group are kind of pulling for, for Kaleidoscape. So that, that's how it's supposed to work. Okay. That, that, you know, it's, it, and you never know for sure how it will work. We just cut our first uh, uh, agreement with a buying group ourselves, SBS, with ProSource, which is a, a different buying group than ASEAN, but similar type of arrangement, I would imagine. Okay. So <laughs> I'm not a manufacturer, so help me, help me think through this. Then what are the benefits from the manufacturer's standpoint? Um, because it seems, it seems like it's more work uh, instead of going through a, distribu a distribution channel than to it seems like it's more work going through a buying group because you're dealing with all these other different individuals than it is going through distributor and you just saying, you know what, if you want to purchase it, here's, here's our distributor. Yes, we're still going to support you. Yes, our reps are going to come out and see you, but for purchasing, here's, here's our distributor. What are the okay. benefits and the, and the, and the drawbacks? Well, the, the, the draw, the, a distributor relationship is really interesting because you know the distributor will tell you, yeah, you're going to approve everybody I transact with. You'll still have control, but now I'm going to buy the product from you, and I'm going to warehouse it, and I'm going to take care of your logistics and your supply chain. But what really happens is the distributor now owns the product, and you have no control over who ends up buying it. So there, there are negatives to that. Okay. Not to mention the fact that if they're going to take possession of the product, they're not going to be willing to live with just a very, very small slice of the pie. So you have to be in a very generous frame of mind as a manufacturer. You're going to transact with a distributor. Um, so the negatives of working with a distributor, you lose control of the distribution. And uh, although they sometimes will claim that that won't happen, it, it often does. And then the, the second negative is a distributor is providing much more in terms of value than a, a buying group or a you know, manufacturer's representative who is not actually taking possession of the product. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes complete sense. Yeah, I've just never had somebody actually explain it that way, so it makes complete <laughs> sense. So. All right, then. So if you're, if you're a, a part of ASEAN, you can 
go to Kaleidoscape now. Uh, all right, Mr. Huntington, one of my uh, favorite things uh, to talk to you, at least on a personal level, is, is your experience at Infocom. I understand it was two months ago, but this is the first time that John and I have gotten <laughs> together. Um, so give me give me your wrap-up. You, you wrote a, a nice blog piece. We'll put a, a, a link to it on the show notes. Uh, and your two things, or one, your, two of your things that you were talking about, uh, was Dante and AVB. So what, what are your thoughts about AVB? You know, start with that first, uh, coming out of Infocom 2014. Well, it's interesting. I, I, yeah, I have a blog entry. I actually have blog entries going back, I guess, to 2009 uh, when I first saw ABB uh, on the floor of Infocom. <clears throat> and ABB, if people don't know, is audio video bridging. It's uh, IEEE standard for sending audio and video over uh, Ethernet. The, um, I was a big supporter of it initially. It's an open standard. It's made by IEEE. But in sort of in, uh, sorry, summarize a little bit, it's just taken too long to get out and get on the market. In the meantime, at least in the live sound market, which is where I'm, I spend most of my time, uh, Dante, which is a proprietary technology by a company in Australia called Audinate, has kind of come in and, and just grabbed the market while ABB was sort of waiting to get out. And a lot of ABB people, uh, and I've written a few, actually some of the, it's kind of amazing how many hits I've gotten on some of these blog entries. Uh, a lot of people keep finding it and reading it um, and people complained about it, saying, well, we haven't, you know, it's still it's around the corner or whatever. But I think today, I mean, for example, I just uh, left uh, the school where I teach uh, a couple hours ago, and right there we're testing uh, our sound system for the Haunted Hotel we do every year. That's been running on Dante for three years now. Um, the, um, so it's there. I can just buy this stuff. We have a lot of Yamaha gear. Shore is on it. Um, uh, there's all kinds of stuff you can buy out there. I have, there's a list. I have a link on the website. So I think it's unfortunate for ABB being an open standard. I kind of think that they sort of missed the the market. Because um, oh, and to, the other thing about ABB is it needs special switches, uh, Ethernet switches, in order to work because the switches themselves track the the sort of transit time of the information through the switch, and then they package that information along with the uh, with the the uh, audio sample, because obviously in audio we need to have things sample lock, which is you know at least 44, 48,000 times a second, so it has to be pretty precise. So you can't really even run ABB. I mean, there are ways around that apparently, but really to use ABB the way it was designed, you have to have an ABB switch. And until a couple weeks ago, actually after Info Infocom, there's really there's only one switch manufacturer, which is Extreme Networks, mm -hmm. that's gotten their switch through the ABB process. And last summer, a year ago, I was on my way back from Maine on a holiday, and I stopped in New Hampshire and visited where they test these switches. It's a really cool place, the University of New Hampshire, where they test all this stuff. That was a year ago. I said, well, this is great, but I'm like, you guys got to get some stuff out there on the market because I can already buy, I can do everything I need today, so why do I need this stuff? And here we are a year later at Infocom. It's kind of the same situation. So it's interesting. I think the long-range... Um, Talking to people uh, involved in the situation, it seems like ABB uh, does have a future. Uh, interestingly enough, in the uh, the biggest proponents right now are the automotive guys, yeah. because the uh, weight in these cars is very, uh, especially with gas mileage issues and everything else. Weight is a huge issue, and if they can reduce the number of you know cables they have to run around the car for backup camera, for the you know uh, audio systems, for all the sensors and stuff and replace that with just some uh, network, then that actually apparently can save them a lot of weight on cable. So that's a big market where they really need it. It's probably going to go forward. 
I would say sadly in the live sound market, I mean, it's not sadly because the stuff works, the Autonate stuff works, uh, works just fine. Uh, that Autonate sort of already won that race. And then the people who debated with me are like, well, the race hasn't even started yet. I'm like, well, I can, I can go buy the stuff today. I can't really buy, I can only buy very few PBV products today uh, and only one switch company that's been certified. And since, um, let me get the right thing out here. Since Infocom, uh, a friend of mine named Jeremy Lee sent me a very interesting thing that Motu, which is Mark the Unicorn, uh, who makes a lot of audio interfaces for computers, you know, mostly for Macintosh stuff, they've now introduced a switch that's running, ABB switch, it's about 300 bucks. So it's uh, very interesting that they would invest in this. They also have, you know, there's other a few other products out there. Uh, I'm not sure what they're, where they're going with this, but it's it's an interesting development. And it, and it can... Does this need to play nice with others, or can it be a self-contained system? What's that, ABB? Yeah. Uh, it, it's pretty much a self-contained system. It, it's not, I mean, it is and it isn't. Uh, it, it's it's a self-contained system in the fact that the, the talkers and the listeners, which are the, the endpoints for AVB, they have to be AVB, right? Uh, you can't have a, a an AVB transmitter, let's call it that, and send it to a Dante receiver. Um, that's something you well, can't Actually, do. the Dante Autonate has said they will support AVB, so... Okay. And there's a there's an AES standard at least on the audio side. Uh, I don't know what if there's any real development in video. Uh, at least on the audio side, there's a very interesting standard developed by Kevin Gross, who's an old friend of mine. who's actually the, I think he's the inventor, but he's certainly the main developer of Cobranet. So uh, Cobranet's still selling. It's it's really old now, but it's still out there. But anyway, this thing called AES 67, Audio Engineering Society 67, is a way to do cross-platform. Uh, uh, transfers from it can could go from ABB to Dante or uh, Ravina. I forget what their system. There's a big one in broadcast. The Ravina can't remember the name of the product. It's Ravina is the company that makes it. So AES 67 should solve that problem as well. But if you want to do native ABB, you need an ABB switch. Yeah, yeah. And I actually talked with some of the folks at, at Avenue uh, about the Moto, and um, oh, cool. They said that they are not <clears throat> obviously not certified because to John's point. There's actually only two certified products currently. Uh, that's a Crown Amp and the Extreme Networks uh, Switch. Now, there were some serious rumors flying around the end of, of July, first part of August, that apparently the next thing up for uh, up for uh, certification to come out is supposed to be a speaker of some sort. So hmm. um, when that comes out, we'll see. Uh, but, but yeah, you're right. The certification process seems to be taking longer than... than and then... The certification process is important, uh, yes. given the, the way it's working. But, and I have a picture on my on that blog entry that I don't remember remember exactly. But if you look at the the, the uh, Dante display, so we're now we're talking about there will be three official ABB products on the market after five years, at least five years to develop this thing. In the meantime, I'm just looking at this picture. There's probably 25 Dante products there, wow. including all the Yamaha mixers, uh, the newest Shure wireless microphones some speakers now. I mean, again, it's uh, ABB's great stuff, but it's just it's just taking too long. And this is a problem with open standards, as has happened before, that, uh, you know, sometimes the proprietary guys can just get it get it going farther, faster, get their stuff on the market, and sort of own the market in the mean, you know, while the, the open standard hasn't gotten out there. Same thing happened in the whiting market with uh, ACN. Actually, there's really no replacement for that, which is an advanced control network or architecture control network. And then even in the audio market, there was uh, AES-10, which is another open standard that crashed and burned. 
although they're kind of reviving that now, the same guys involved with the, uh, I'm totally drawing a blank on the name of it, but it's Jeff Berryman uh, from um, Bosch, and I'll think of the standard in a, in a minute. But again, it's uh, I'm not sure, my opinion on standards like this is that the market has to demand them and pull them into existence. Every time we try to shove something, uh, uh, some shove a technology from a standards committee, it very rarely works out. It usually works uh, better the other way when it's like, we got to solve this problem today. Here, we need this solution, then they, then they do it. Yeah. And, and to John's point, so sometimes it, if, if it's proprietary driven, there's not as many people that you have to have say yes to it. So oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would always prefer open standards, but it's just not, it's not always possible. Yeah, I, I've become, when I first saw AVB, I was not overly uh, excited about it simply because they had audio stuff, just no video stuff. And over the last year or so, I've become very, very bullish on it. And I still, I'm, I'm still excited about it. Uh, I still think that it has, it has a chance to make a real good shakeup. Um, the one, the one drawback currently, I, I think, is is the the slowness with which some of these certified certified products are coming out. So, I was yeah, hopeful I, that I once the first time, the, I was really hopeful once the first one came out that they had the system streamlined, and you know, it may, maybe every month or every six weeks or so that they would start popping, and, and they just haven't. Yeah, and I don't think the actual certification process takes that long because it's a pretty amazing facility. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a there's basically one uh, one guy overseeing it and a bunch of really really smart um, uh, interns and people that work with them. And they're there. They certify stuff all day every day. I don't think the process is very takes very long, but it means the manufacturer basically has to get the gear there. You know, have a working product, get it there, get through the process. They have to pay for this, obviously. Um, and then get it out. So I don't think the process itself takes all that long. I mean, obviously the first couple would take take you know take longer. But I mean, they were up and running over a year ago when I visited them. So I'm not. I really don't know what the delay is at this point. Yeah. I mean, other than it's just the players in the market aren't aren't pushing on it. So. All right. Uh, from our friends over at Sound Stage Experience, an interesting question: um, Do subwoofers have a sound? I will say the question again. Do subwoofers have a sound? Uh, and it's an interesting question. And, and the, the one thing I, I, I took away from this was the fact that, you know, and, and the, the broader question is whether or not we actually need subwoofers. Really, audiophiles aside, and, and I love you, audiophiles. You're wonderful people. Mr. Tucker is one of them. Him and his weighted knobs. Uh, <laughs> um but there are some, uh, there are a lot of, of mid-range speakers now that will go down sort of in that lower range. They do not go down to 50 hertz or 20 hertz. I'll give you that. But 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 for the most part, they're you know they're pretty good for you know most home systems and most professional systems. Gary, we'll start with you on this one. It does you know what when it comes to you know subwoofers in general, do we need them anymore? Well, you know, that's obviously a loaded question, and I hope you have another hour for me to talk I about do, this. I do, sure. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. But, you know, look, I think uh, uh, I'll, I'll say it a certain way. There, there are, are uh, if you believe in home theater and two-channel, um, uh, let's, let's start with home theater. Two-thirds of the home theater uh, uh, emotional content, the impact, the involvement of the home theater experience comes from the sound. I think we would probably all agree with that. And, you know, you kind of betrayed a little bit of a bias when you said, hey, Sounds pretty good, right? Without a subwoofer. Well, that's probably true. That 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 you can create pretty good sound 
without having that lowest base extension. But the truth is, in, a, in an uncompromised home theater, a subwoofer that's doing its job, and that is a qualifier that needs to be in the sentence, a subwoofer that's doing its job can create a large portion of that emotional content and impact that the home theater has, which we've already probably would agree it comes from the sound. Well, maybe more than half of that excitement and impact would co can come from the subwoofer. But the subwoofer has to be doing its job in a, in a way that it, it creates that experience, which I could define that, but maybe I'll, I'll yield to the other panelists who may not agree with that. All right, Mr. Mr. Tucker, I called you an audiophile because of your lover weighted knobs. <laughs> And you were shaking your head like, no, no, I'm not an audiophile. Mm, I gave you the meh, maybe. Meh. The, the... I like parts of it. I'm a two-channel guy all the way. Yeah. Um, that's just my background. It's what I like. Um, but I think the article does raise a really important question. What do you want the subwoofer for? What is it? And the article makes pains. John and I, before the show, had a little discussion about what his measurement of that was. He's using Q. What does that mean? doesn't take the space into account. All those things aside, it really is asking, what do you want the bass for? There's basically two divisions, right? Do you want depth and, and added clarity, as it were, to the music? Forgive me for using some, such words. Um, with including those subharmonic frequencies, the sub-frequencies? Or are you looking for more power and feel? And those are the two things that are commonly marketed to the audiophile and or home theater group, right? If you're in a home theater, you want some of the bass, but it's more about rumble and emotion and feel of that passing jet or that fighter going kaboom. You feel it more than you really want to hear it in that sense. For listening to music or watching something that's a little more subtle, some of those will not work on the market. There are others who will be passing real music, real sound. Yes, it makes sound, and that's what you're looking for. I don't firmly believe that the center channel slash, uh, I'm losing the name of it now, those little sticks that you put in front. Sound bars? Uh, sound bars, thank you. Just completely lost in my head. Uh, actually give you that. I think they are mid-rangey as all heck, and they really don't satisfy that part of your emotional needs. So it comes down to that. I mean, he makes two, two statements. Quote, so subtle that you, wouldn't, you find yourself not hearing that it's there. But isn't that the trick? Most of what you want to listen to, you don't really want to know it's doing what it's supposed to. It has to be made to look easy. When you're watching an over-the-top movie with surround sound, it's all about beating you over the head with the sound and all the tricks. Uh, again, that division. Um, you know, and his, he's got a bias, too. He mentioned Steely Dan. He mentioned having to hear this. This is a guy who probably knows that that was all recorded by Roger Nichols, who has an entire separate theory on music recording and music uh, sound theory. <laughs> And he died a couple of years ago, but they're just releasing his book and his, and his little uh, pamphlet on that. Um, but that shows you what he's looking for. He's into hearing all of those instrumentations and not having it muddied, and a subwoofer in those cases helps. Well, that's the, the problem, I think, is that people are scarred by subwoofers that don't do the job correctly. And, and if they don't do the job correctly, all they do, uh, just like any system, is, is, is going to be only as good as its weakest link. A subwoofer who doesn't do its job correctly will make things worse, not better. Um, uh, uh, but the reality is, um, if he's also not hearing it sometimes, that's probably, as you said, a, or thinks he's not hearing it, that's probably a good thing because what uh, a, ho a home theater or a two-channel system needs to do is create that suspension of disbelief so that you're having a total experience and connecting with the program content the way that it was intended for you to connect with it. Um, a great subwoofer is a purpose-built device 
designed to create bass. It is an ecosystem between the cabinet, the amplifier, the DSP, and the driver, and it cannot be done in the passive environment, in my opinion. Um, at least I've never heard it done correctly in the passive environment. A great subwoofer needs to have low frequency extension below audibility, which creates a great experience despite the fact that you can't actually even hear it. Yeah. It needs to do that uh, at a sound pressure level that rises to whatever the passive full range speakers uh, are, are doing. It needs to be extremely quick, and this is an important point. It needs to be able to stop and start on a dime, create sound, and stop creating sound exactly when it's supposed to do. And it needs to deliver the, those frequencies, only those frequencies that are supposed to be there, only in the quantities that are supposed to be there. And if it doesn't do all those things correctly, then it can make things worse rather than better. But if it does all those things correctly, it can create a seamless experience that's part of the theater or two-channel system, and would be it would be unfair to say that that was a negative and made things worse. No, I think that's fair, John. What do you think when it comes to, you know, subwoofers and 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 uh, whether or not we need them or not, and and to, to Gary's point, you know, having that so low that it's it's beyond audibility. But it's well, actually, I'll start with that because we did some really interesting research uh, in conjunction with our haunted house a few years ago uh, by intentionally, we had to get uh, uh, approval to do this as a psychological experiment and all this stuff, but we intentionally, in a separate room of the haunted house, we intentionally pumped in 19 hertz uh, subsonic or infrasound and then uh, checked the experience. You can read the whole thing on my blog. It's a long, long process. So. It's really interesting you stand it because the idea was that there's been reports and uh, and you can read up on it, but most of them have not been substantiated. But reports of infrasound causing you know ghostly sort of experiences or apparitions or whatever, we weren't able to replicate any of the, any of that stuff. But I will tell you, standing in a room with a lot of 19 hertz is just annoying after a while. So <laughs> it's definitely you can perceive it uh, absolutely. And so then in the process, what's up? You did perceive it. Well, it's interesting because if you walked, if you didn't know it was there, you, I mean, the the subjects that we had come in, they couldn't really explain. They wouldn't know it was there or not. It was easy, obvious for us when we turned it on and off. Uh, I could, I learned it. I mean, I, I have a lot of experience as a sound engineer. I learned it. I could hear it by the end of the experiment. I could walk in and, and perceive it. But it's more just like it was annoying. But but anyway, in, there's no question that uh, having lots of recordings of all varieties have frequencies down to 20 hertz. A lot of systems can't, uh, which 20 hertz being sort of the generally accepted low end of your hearing. A lot of systems don't produce anything that low, so absolutely uh, subwoofer adds a lot. I think my issue with this article is that he's, I've literally read these three paragraphs about four times. I still don't know what the hell he's talking about. So he's talking about resonant bandwidth and some other things that really about speaker design. I just looked up a professional subwoofer and there's, you know, what we rate uh, subwoofer design is frequency response. Like here's a classic, uh, in fact, the one we use, the 19 hertz experiment, class or classic Meyer 650p sub. Frequency response there is, is plus or minus 4 dB from 28 to 100 hertz. Phase response, plus or minus 30 degrees, et cetera, et cetera. Resonance bandwidth, I don't even know if you can find a subwoofer. I, don't, I haven't looked at a consumer subwoofer cut sheet, but I don't, I don't know what he's talking about with this thing. But absolutely... Um, uh, and I'm, I'm going to send this to my friend Bob McCarthy, who wrote the book on this stuff, and see what he says. But uh, I, my, and my issue in general with a lot of – I should take a step back. I'm, I'm too many things in my head at once. 
my general advice is on a home speakers, if you like it, buy it. I'm, I don't really get involved with it. The From the pro side, we're always looking for something a little bit different. We're looking for accuracy in that, you know, like in an engineering way that if I put this signal in, this comes out. That may not be what people want at home. If they like music that uh, has a lot of bass uh, and they like it that way, that's great. Buy it. Um, I, I have a little problem with people selling people based on things that you can't measure. So, like he's talking about fast. I don't really know what that means because we can measure transient response. And these frequencies down there, the, the driver is moving so slowly, it's really not an issue. Uh, I mean, you can watch it like this 19 hertz thing, even 20 hertz. You can go look at the speaker cone and see it moving back and forth. So I don't really think transient response is a big deal on these things because they all do it. 100 hertz is pretty slow. Uh, 100 cycles per second is pretty slow. If you're getting up into, uh, you know, 8, 10, 12K, now you're talking about really moving a driver around and the mass of the, the speaker and all that really comes into play. But So anyway, I think I agree with this guy in principle that the subwoofers are certainly useful. I have one on my little home theater system here. Um, but I don't know if you, what his advice, I'm not really sure what he's telling you to buy. I think that's what's confusing me. I don't just don't understand this whole discussion about Q. Because I know what Q is, and then if you look up resonant bandwidth, you get uh, circuit design, and it makes perfect sense in there. Q comes from quality of a filter. So if you're making an EQ filter or something like that, if it has a high Q, it's very effective and uh, very typically very narrow. Um, but in a speaker cabinet, uh, I don't think that's a spec the consumer is going to see. But maybe I don't, I don't, you know, I really don't follow it that carefully. So maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I actually agree with everything you just said, and I think one interesting thing about subwoofers is unlike speakers, which are kind of one of the last refuges of personality in the world of audio, where you really do make a preference choice, it's you're never going to have a speaker that pleases every uh, consumer. Subwoofers, a lot of what a subwoofer does well can be quantified, and, and I think uh, um, it, it works in the favor of people who really work hard to make good ones, because um, I, I, I don't think it's a matter of taste whether the subwoofer is doing a good job or not. Oh, know? absolutely. But I think the criteria used to evaluate it I didn't. I mean, it's still from the pro side. We would use frequency response, phase response, and phase gets crazy at those low frequencies because the wavelength is so enormous. Uh, I have a feeling that whatever subwoofers this guy's testing, it has a lot more to do. The efficiency of the sub in the room is more likely going to be affected by where you put the thing in the room. Like you stick it over in the corner, which we would call a space, where the waves are reflecting off the wall. Uh, there's a lot of those issues that are that have far, um, you know, far bigger impact on the sound in the end than the, the resonance bandwidth of the speaker. Uh, and the other thing is the old days, it's a little different now since things are kind of component. Actually, that's not true because I look at my little home theater system here. Uh, it has just binding posts on the back you put the wires on. If you, you're not careful about the polarity on when you put the thing in, then your left speaker is going to be moving forward while your right speaker is sucking backwards. That's going to cancel out the low frequency. And that's a 50-50 chance if you, or I don't know what the odds are exactly because there's two components, but um, that I, I've gone to, uh, in the old days and everybody had a stereo, I, I did magic on lots of people's stereo just by flipping the wires on one side and putting it in polarity so the two speakers weren't fighting each other. So my issue is always, you know, if a lawyer wants to buy this or some gold-plated power cords or whatever, it's not really hurting anybody, but uh, we tend to stick to the things you can actually measure. But as usual, the... It, almost always, same thing we're saying about the security stuff. To me, oh, I think he just dropped out. Yeah, just we, we pissed him off now. That's oh, it. <laughs> now he was agreeing with you. Yeah. Yes, I know. 
we had the guys from maybe rant on. I don't know. They might have some issues with it. There might be an issue. <laughs> yeah, like, like from audio files. <laughs> but I think a lot of it is focus on the basics. Make sure your speakers are in polarity. Try them in different places in the room. If you like the sound better, like, go with it. Yeah, very good. All right. Uh, well, the, one last thing, actually, kind of you know, uh, nice that you, Gary dropped off when he did because we're we're wrapping up here. One last thing, guys, uh, and this is this is not. I mean, if you want to uh, quarters in it, that's what he did. He forgot the quarters. He, in he ran out of quarters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if 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 you want to to comment on this, go ahead. Uh, but this is again for no other reason than for George Tucker's amusement. Uh, OM Audio's levitating Bluetooth speaker for $180. And, and you're, we just lost your image now. You just so. lost my, you have nothing? Yeah. Yep. I have black on my, there, there it is. is. Okay. There it is. You got it? Yep. All right. Well, there it is. OM there it is. Audio's Rotating. levitating Bluetooth speaker uh, for $180. Bucks. Speaker. Huh? speaker, speaker, speaker. Speaker. <laughs> So very interesting. I, we commented before the show when we were looking at this that I'm John was trying to figure out how they were doing it. And I think it's Bluetooth and it's just like a, you know, standard remote. And, and I think they're doing the whole magnet thing because that's what the, the housing's made out of. Yeah. But I'm just wondering how they'd make it not sound like a Leslie cabinet going around. <laughs> you don't know what a Leslie cabinet is. If you know a Hammond B3 organ, if you mm-hmm. listen to R&B blues or soul, yep. uh, often you will hear this thing. It's the organ that you hear. The Grateful Dead use it a lot. But it has a cabinet that stands up that has a horn, a speaker in it, as well as a horn that rotates. Two yep. horns that rotate, and it gives that woo woo sound. And I'm just, how does it not? I mean, it's Katy Perry. How can you tell if it's doing it or not? I don't know. Have you ever tried uh, to mic but, one of those, by the way? Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just put it in the front, unless you want the back sound. And well, no, what we did was we did a figure eight uh, pickup uh, pedal. So yeah. that was very nice. Yeah. But I, just one sentence, and I'm, I'm the guy picking on language today. Oh, go ahead, the, John. It says the levitating effect is interesting to look at, which it is. It's pretty cool looking. But it also reportedly helps better produce better audio with a lower power driver since nearby objects won't absorb sound. Yeah, that was weird. Uh, I noticed that. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means that nearby objects won't absorb the sound. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got nothing. Just in general, it's changing. It's simple, the, uh, yeah. yeah, simple <laughs> physics. The, the sentence diagram's fine, John. Science. <laughs> But, All right. Uh, oh, you want the technical information? Ah, uh, oh. he wants the custom. I mean, it, it looks cool. I think I, I'd buy one just because it looks cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, the person who dropped off, very nice guy, by the way, uh, Gary Yakubian uh, from SVS. He's the president and principal, uh, and apparently he had a three o'clock Eastern time, uh, exactly on the nose uh, appointment to go to. I'm just, <laughs> I'm picking on Gary. Uh, good guy though. Good guy. Um, uh, so check him out uh, at SVS uh, if if you get a chance, uh, Mr. John Huntington. As always, sir, a wonderful pleasure, and my brain hurts now uh, from control. <laughs> well, thanks for having, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, where can people find you and your musings? Uh, everything's linked from ControlGeek.net. So I post occasionally there. Uh, sometimes industry related, sometimes just uh, uh, tornado pictures, whatever else I'm shooting that week, but. Uh, every, I have everything linked out from there, so that's the best place. I have, I'm on Twitter and all that stuff as well. I was going to say, if you're if you're also a weather geek, you, you need to go to John's website because he has some very uh, very cool uh, pictures from time to time. So, yeah, it's fun. Also, uh, Mr. George Tucker, engineering coordinator coordinator for World Stage and a whole bunch of other stuff at Aviation. Uh, where can people find you, sir? Uh, at Tucker Twos. I also write for several folks, but more importantly for the EH Pub 
folks at Commercial Integrator and Tech Decisions Magazine. Indeed. Speaking of which, uh, I was I was uh, honored, I guess, to to be on a, a webinar this week uh, mm. that Mr. Tucker uh, <laughs> um, crashed. He didn't crash. <laughs> you. Uh, you you were a viewer of the webinar, and you used big words that confused both Mr. Greenblatt and myself. So. I'm going to have contention. Semaphore. <laughs> Semaphore. Semaphore. So if John you is, John, uh, this was in reference to using gestures to control things, and my question yeah, was, oh, yes. how close to learning semaphore do we need to do this? Oh, that's funny. And, mm. and it will. You See, know. He gets it. He gets it. Oh, yes. I remember <laughs> when I was a kid at the beach. That's how the white guards used to communicate. It was very cool. It must yeah. be a New York thing. Easily, easily. No, I was in Maryland. That's but that's easily hackable. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> semaphore is easily hackable, unless you put you know your own little. Never mind. Password. So, and, and actually, that even goes uh, one very quick thing that I can't remember the name of. There's a great book on the history of the telegraph that the first telegraphs were actually like semaphore. There were big towers with flags on them. Mm -hmm. and that, that's how they used to do it. And that was the first digital systems in like, you know, 1890 or something. It's pretty wow. cool. You know, you can read a lot about this stuff too is uh, Mark Schubin. You look yes. at Mark Schubin. I forget the name of his blog at the moment. Forgive me, it's on my RSS feed. But he does remarkable stuff about this and how the opera basically is. The innovator in many technologies that we use today. Um, you know, he goes everything from doing opera over the phone lines back in the 1800s, uh, delivering data and all the same phrases and terms that we use about bandwidth and usage and all that other stuff. And he did a great one about, um, I think, about those flags at one point, and also about baseball, watching baseball remotely in the 1900s. Big scoreboards that they got the telegraphs in from and would move the characters around yeah. the board with big lights and stuff. It was. It's amazing. Mark Shubin, look him up. Cool. Fantastic blog. Yeah, that was a really yeah. cool article. That's something that one of the things, one of the ones that George sent me. Uh, so yeah, so check out that uh, that webinar. It's on Commercial Integrator. I'll, I'll put a link to uh, to the webinar on uh, on the show notes. What uh, was the webinar actually about? I missed. Oh yeah, part. I didn't say that, did I? It was about. It was myself and and Steve Greenblatt, uh, Tom uh, LeBlanc, uh, our buddy Tom uh, moderated it, and and Steve and I kind of did a, a debate about the future of, of automation, control and automation. So we talked about everything from gesture-based control to the future of touch panels and, and uh, the future of, of control languages. And, and uh, you just talked about, honestly, you talked about 45 minutes about, about control and automation. So if that's something you're interested in and in your wheelhouse, that you know, it was an interesting conversation, um, at least from you know, Steve's side. I'm just an idiot that just, you know, whatever. I don't think so. I think I think they felt sorry for me, so because they've had George on, they've had Steve on, they've had a bunch of so they just said, you know, we got to get him on, so he'll shut up. Uh, but yeah, go go to that and 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 listen to Steve. Be smart. Um, my name is Tim Albright. I'm your host. Don't do anything with Twitter with me, but go by the website if you would please. Avnation.tv. Avnation.tv. You will find this program and a host of others. Uh, we also have a newsletter that we're starting out, uh, hopefully by around Cedia time, uh, September or so. So there's a, a sign up for that. Uh, a live life, uh, which is George's uh, live staging and uh, and uh, live. Good lord, I can't even talk. Live state live events and staging podcast. There you go. Thank you. Uh, EdTech. We'll have a new EdTech and a new uh, state of control this week. Uh, George new just lighting did, guy posted. I was gonna say just the, just posted a lighting guy and Pico Pro, uh, which is mm -hmm. our Pico uh, projector. Uh, yeah, awesome Pico Pro with the guys from OMPT who use Pico electronics, especially projectors and recorders, to uh, service remote areas in the world to help them train and teach how wow. to do things. Very cool. so, yeah, 
They have really cool people. But the guy that started is the editor and publisher of Video Maker magazine. Oh, wow. Very cool. So if you remember digging into that as a kid, it's, it's still around. It's a great magazine. It's wow. doing a lot of good work. Very cool. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they just did that one last night? Uh, no, two, two nights ago. Two, two nights ago, I was two posted officially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so check that out, avianation.tv. There's a ton of stuff there. We're, we're getting a few bloggers and uh, starting to th throw some news articles up there from time to time as well. So, avianation.tv, avianation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for watching. This has been AV Week.